Welcome to the Big Self Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Prevost. And I'm your host, Shelly Prevost. We are the podcast for the Big Self School, and we offer classes, coaching, books, and media to help you rediscover your purpose and activate it in bigger ways. Thanks for making a little time to join us. We know you've got a lot to do. Even if you've got a lot of time on your hands, it is hard to just be still and listen sometimes. Shelly, we've heard that the first step on the road to coping is coming to acceptance. How are you doing with acceptance right now? Today, not great. I will be honest, fighting a a little resistance to the things that I don't like going on with this pandemic. Yeah, me too. Got to agree with you there. Whatever it is you're doing to cope with the constant new normal of these uncertain times as we barrel into the holiday season, we hope it is healthy. But even if it's not, we're glad you're finding a way to apply some positivity to your life and to help you do just that. We have brought on author of three books and positive psychologist Nika. Rose, who holds a doctoral degree in business administration. He's also a graduate of the MAP program at the University of Pennsylvania. Nico is a full professor of organizational psychology at International School of Management in Dortmund, one of Germany's premier business schools. Prior to that, he served as the vice president, employer branding, and talent acquisition at Bertelsmann. You got it. Europe's largest media corporation. He is a frequent interview partner on human resources and leadership topics in newspapers, professional magazines, and online publications. Nico is also a regular keynote speaker at corporate events and conventions on leadership, coaching, and human resources. He lives in Hamm, Germany with his wife, Ina, two children. I think it's Ina. Ina. Yeah. And two cats. Nico Rose, welcome to the Big Self Podcast. Thank you very much for having me on your show. I was so great. glad. Yeah, we're so glad you're here. You're here. So I have to tell you, I let's see. Gosh, I I started really discovering positive psychology back I think in like 2008 or nine, and it wasn't long after that that I started seeing your name everywhere. So I'm really curious about how long you have been in the field of of positive psychology specifically, because I feel like I've seen you around for a very long time. And how did you get into this work? Well, I sort of discovered the whole field probably around the same time. Um, I I started working as a coach in 2008. Okay. Over here in Germany to, to make a living while at the same time pursuing my PhD. And... Probably after two years or so, after having seen my first, let's say, uh, 100 clients, I I thought I would recognize some patterns in Mm -hmm. what kept people from, you know, reaching their goals or fulfilling their potential or however you might call that. And, um, well, all the people are very different, obviously, but on a higher level i thought there were a couple of similarities between whatever kept people from you know being happy and 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 reaching their goals and so i uh, developed a questionnaire that was meant to measure the uh, the presence of of specific let's say roadblocks to success and i i hadn't really heard about uh positive psychology at all because it hadn't really come over the pond by then the only thing that I really knew was this uh, satisfaction with life scale by, by Ed Diener, which is mm-hmm. a short questionnaire, which is really popular to measure people's sort of overall satisfaction in life. 
then uh, I, I created my own questionnaire and put that together with at dinner satisfaction with life scale. And I put that on the internet uh, over here in Germany. And I was really lucky and uh, roughly 1,200 people responded to that questionnaire. And I uh, found some very nice, you know, correlations between what, what I put in my scale and between uh, satisfaction with life. Mm-hmm. And I wrote that down and that went into an article for a German coaching magazine. And then afterwards, the same publisher asked me to turn that into my first book because they, they liked what they had seen in an article. And while researching for, for my own book, not knowing that positive psychology existed at all, I, I stumbled upon this book, uh, The How of Happiness by uh, Sonja Lajubomirski. Mm-hmm. That really uh, opened my, my mind to the existence of uh, positive psychology as, as a science. And at first I was really angry because I, I thought I had invented the whole thing. <laughs> which was <laughs> very, awesome. very stupid, obviously. But So I'm, I'm a psychologist by, by training, but after leaving um, university, I, I went into the world of business and my PhD was also in, in a business setting. So I had somehow lost touch with the world of psychology for a couple of years. And I literally didn't know that the whole field existed. Then, you know, I, I stumbled upon uh, Sonia's book and all those uh, super awesome references in the back. And I just started reading more and more. And then I stumbled upon uh, Martin Seligman's work. And back then, I think in 2011, he wrote uh, Flourish. Mm-hmm. Right. And the H chapter is just a big marketing uh, brochure for his uh, math degree in pen. Mm-hmm. And I, I somehow found a way to to go and study with him, which was in 2013 and 14. And back then, I also started my my own English blog on positive psychology, which was rather meant to be a travel blog while I was in the program at Penn. And I just, uh, you know, found it entertaining and I kept doing it for a couple of years. That's the Mapalicious blog, which you, yes, you might have. Uh, yeah, and I think that's where I really started seeing your work, your prolific work more and more and more, because I was following your blog for a long time. So yeah, I think that's when I first got really familiar with, with you and the work that you're doing. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's good. Mapalicious, we will make sure that we put that in our show notes. Oh yeah, it's a great site. It's, it is. Uh, quite, it's, it's, it's a blog, but it's a lot more than a blog. It's a resource mm-hmm. inventory. You, uh, you kept that going clearly um, long after your tenure there at, um, at the MAP Center. Um, so, you know, well, it's interesting because there's a lot of misperceptions about positive psychology before we dive in here a little bit. I mean, you obviously, you would, you know, Martin Seligman started some of this in what, like the early to mid 90s. Um, and yet you weren't even aware of those things, even while you were doing that positive psychology work. Can, what are some of the biggest misunderstandings that people tend to have about positive psychology that you see even um, into this pandemic year of 2020? Right. So what always bothers me, and I, I think some of that is happening because people take some of the science and then they write books about it before having fully understood what, what positive psychology is all about. I mean, when you when you read a lot of blogs out there, sometimes people understand that positive psychology is all about wearing rose-colored glasses and right. literally ignoring negative feelings and, and trying to push that away. 
And from my perspective, nothing could be further from the truth. So yes, um, positive psychology is concerned with positive emotions and how we can get more of that into our lives. And, and even more, a question that hasn't really been explored before the onset of positive psychology, what's the unique evolutionary purpose of positive emotions? Because if we are able to experience them after a couple of million years of evolution, there probably has to be a good reason why we're able to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And this is um, something that ha- Barbara Fredrickson has explored in her Broaden and Build Theory. So, Yes, we try to investigate the cultivation of positive emotions and we try to understand the sort of the purpose of positive emotions. But at the same time, we don't really uh, advise people to ignore anything else that would be highly stupid. But sometimes people perceive it to be that way on, on the outside. Yeah. So I came to positive psychology. So my background is in uh, clinical psychology and educational psychology. And I was a therapist for a very long time and, and then really started to burn out on pathology. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so wearied of treating people to get from negative five to zero. So we're just getting functional. We're just getting to the point where they're they're back at this kind of functional baseline. And I wanted to get people, help them move from zero to five. And so I entered positive psychology, exactly what you're talking about with this perspective of strengths. It's about optimal, it's about optimization. It's about positivity. And for a very long time, I still, you know, I really, um, functioned under that idea and that illusion really. And I was even the director of happiness at a venture capital firm here in town. And, you know, with that comes a lot of misconceptions about what it is that I even had. And so, you know, fast forward 10 years later and I see it as such a robust um, way to help people because it's not, it's not uh, denying the, the negative aspects Um, but, but I think there is an element of helping people kind of pay attention to the positive aspects, like what is going well. So, so I, I love you're saying that. And I think that, um, that kind of wholeness that comes with positive psychology is really, I think there's a turn that's happening in the field right now. Would you agree with that? Definitely. And if you, if you look to the very first, uh, official, document about positive psychology, which was this article by Marty and uh, Mikali Csikszentmihalyi in in 2000, what they actually advise is more of a balanced perspective, because what they perceive as well is that until then, positive uh, psychology in general was very much leaning into, into clinical stuff and into understanding basically what what kept people from from zero in in the negative direction and they they never talked mm-hmm. about replacing anything they talked about a more balanced uh, perspective and I, I think that's still true today yeah I yeah. agree. Well, I agree. why don't we try to put a positive spin on some of this with this positive psychology? Because we've been dealing with so much chronic stress and anxiety and, you know, and it just kind of keeps going on. People are calling it like ambiguous loss. 
but you, you know, you've also, uh, you've seen something that, you know, positive psychologists that you are amongst other things could give us a little good news. So first, could you explain to us what is post-traumatic growth and how is it measured? Right. So, uh, Post-traumatic growth, in a way, is sort of the the opposite to what most people have probably heard about from from the news, which is something like you know post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. And this this is what probably even lay people know. There's people that are going through very stressful times. Let's say a soldier who's been in in combat and maybe has seen uh, comrades die, and then they sort of come home and are stressed and not only for a couple of days but they may be really stressed out for for months or even years and they are not functional this is what people typically perceive what what happens after after time of great stress or even trauma and i would say roughly 30 years ago there were some some researchers basically one is called Lawrence Calhoun and the other one in, in english i think it's Richard Tedeschi and they are uh, interviewed lots and lots of people and found out that this pathway is not the only pathway after uh, having, you know, experienced a trauma and that it may not even be the most common way. What what they found is that when people have gone through um, extensive trauma and they are sort of taken care of very well and they are accompanied while going through that recovery process, they can mm-hmm. also experience what we now call post-traumatic growth. And there's roughly five points that are used to kind of identify this growth. So what people then say in interviews is something like, I, I have a greater appreciation of life compared to, to the time before the trauma. Some of them are report that they afterwards have more intimate relationship with other people. And, and so somehow they maybe find out who's really important in their lives. And, and sometimes they also find out who's maybe not so important in their lives. So they change their relationship patterns. Uh, a lot of people report that they have a sense of personal strength. So after uh, sort of coping with trauma, they know more about what really keeps them going and what, what strength they can rely on when, when times are really hard. In general, there's sometimes this feeling that people discover new um, possibilities and pathways in their life might be a new direction professionally, but also discovering new hobbies, discovering new things that you want to spend your time with. And uh, not all of them, but also a lot of people report that they uh, experience a kind of a spiritual development while going through trauma or while successfully uh, coping with trauma. Uh, the, the important part is that mostly it's not a direct function of the trauma itself, but it's a function of successfully coping with whatever you experience. And that often relies on being helped by, by significant others or by a therapist or by a coach. So it's really a function of the successful dealing with what has happened to you. It doesn't happen automatically. So when we're we're talking about the people that experience post traumatic growth, and that it's largely uh, an op- like it's their environment or it's the social support that they receive, I'm wondering if it's do you think a result of this social support is the ability to 
like uh, some perspective taking? Is it, I mean, is that kind of the, st- the pathway to more of a growing through a resilience uh, from a trauma? Or do you think it's something else that, as, a, as a result of the social support? I would say it's a couple of different factors. So uh, it might be getting a, a different sense of perspective by, by being offered other perspectives from, from other people. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a personal comfort. So sometimes the best thing that you can do is just being with other people and, and holding a space for their pain and, mm-hmm. you know, not, not trying to change anything or everything right away, but just being there and being empathetic and being compassionate. And, and you know, just, uh, I, I'm a big fan of, of Jane Dutton's work. She's at the University of mm-hmm. uh, Michigan. And she would call that holding a space. So being there while other people are in pain, not judging them, just, just giving comfort. And then when that period is over, maybe offering new perspectives. So, it's it's not just um, one thing. It's it's really a lot of different positive mm-hmm. experts that that social support has to offer. Yeah, and I just read some research uh, recently about language. You know that stress and anxiety almost like can't live in an environment of language. So when we put words and we talk it talk it out. We put words in a by writing something down that it it. Um, not extinguishes, but it minimizes the the stress, the the acute stress and anxiety that we feel. So maybe there's some part of that as well. But I wanted to go back real quickly to your survey, um, the the 1,200 people that you surveyed for the International School of Management. Um, And I wanted to ask you about that a little bit. Like if you could dig into a little bit more about what you found. And then also we are curious if you had any surprise results that um, that kind of you had to go back and look at. Yeah. So so this survey was conducted very much uh, at the onset of the so-called Corona crisis. So I, I, I think I send out the questionnaire at the end of March, which was uh, a couple of days into the first sort of lockdown here in Germany. I mean, we, we didn't have a real lockdown, but but uh, something like that. And um, so okay. obviously I, I asked people for any perceptions in, in the change of feelings, like do you feel better or, or worse? Do you feel more anxious? Do you feel more stressed out? But also I asked them for the opposite. Maybe you feel more more happy now or whatever. And I also asked them specifically because I was interested in, in um, the post-traumatic growth experience. I asked them for specific signs of post-traumatic growth. Like I asked them, do you feel that you are coping very well with whatever uh, Corona puts you through? Do you find new pathways? Do you feel that you can handle challenges on the job very well or challenges in, in your private life. And uh, this was sort of the, the architecture of the, of the questionnaire. And what I found is, which was really in a way surprising and in a way not surprising, is that a key factor in all of this was uh, experiencing gratitude. So I asked the people, uh, now, now that the corona crisis is in here and now that the lockdown is here, do you still feel that there's moments in your day or your week where you perceive a lot of gratitude for whatever? I, I didn't go into the specifics. And what I found is that people who reported a heightened level of gratitude 
also experienced a thoroughly heightened level of, well, these personal growth systems. So um, experiencing gratitude really seems to be a kind of driver or or lever for for this experience of, of growth. Yeah. Well, that that's exciting um, to hear. I think you know that gratitude does, um, and I, my understanding is that um, men uh, don't do it uh, generally as well as women. I think that we can probably immediately come to some conclusions that some of the <laughs> cultural. Um, but you know, like, so I specifically, how how would you say how does gratitude do this? Why is it? Uh, hard for for some people to just start practicing gratitude when it has all these studied and amazing results. Yeah, uh, so you should definitely ask Richard Ammons these questions because he's like the the, the top notch researcher for for everything gratitude in the world. But so what I've understood is that in a way gratitude can just supply you with energy. So by sort of redirecting your your attention to things that are good, things that are praiseworthy, or even things that you are great, um, grateful for in you know, uh, regards to, to another person, it really uh, supplies people with, with, with energy. You know, worrying all the time and seeing all the negative stuff that is definitely there uh, in regular life, but also during corona, might sometimes drain you of your energy. But then looking at those things that are, well, uh, good in, in spite of everything that's bad really can can push you through the day. So that's definitely something that I see. And then I would say that kind of practicing our gratitude on a regular level is, is a sort of training. If you constantly uh, try to to focus your energy and your attention on what's what's good and and actively look for that in your life i think it functions as a training of your general level of optimism and optimism uh, again is a very powerful ingredient in, in you know shaping our outlook on life so i think that training gratitude leads to a heightened level of optimism and that is really good for our health and our functioning in, in a lot of ways. That's, that's another pathway that I see. Hmm. And then obviously there's, there's gratitude for, you know, I'm gratitude for, for the sunshine that I, I, I got to see today. But obviously gratitude uh, is also directed towards other people. And so expressing gratitude, not only thinking about what you're grateful for, but really expressing your gratitude towards other people is uh, a way of strengthening social bonds. And and that is very, very helpful in a lot of ways, which we've already heard today, right? Mm -hmm. So this is probably three ways. And I would guess there are a lot more. Gratitude is really a a powerful, powerful thing. So um, I will reveal, I did my my dissertation on gratitude. So I'm like, I'm sitting here, I'm like, pre. Yeah, hands in the air, all of this. Uh, but I looked at um, postpartum mothers. And so really mm-hmm. tried to like dig into those that were doing well postpartum and those who were struggling. One, And I'm curious kind of your take on this. Um, if I can remember, oh, I'm pulling it back up from 10 years ago uh, in my head. Um, I found that it really came down to a difference between um, 
almost like a thankfulness for a specific task for, or a specific, um, like a, uh, the, the benefactor, like you really feel like a thankfulness for that person for whatever they did versus dispositional gratitude, whereas this kind of like over, overall attitude of gratitude, just, you know, to say it that way. So I found right. that, um, so I'm curious in your research, if you found a similar difference, like people that have that kind of overall disposition, like they're just kind of those, they're, they're practicing gratitude or they're, it's just, it's more top of mind, a consciousness for them. Do you find that they are more resilient, um, and have higher life satisfaction than the people that are just kind of like thinking about, I'm thankful that you just did this for me. So the truth is, I I haven't really gathered uh, data on gratitude as, you know, sort of a character trait. Yeah, Um, yeah. But what I could imagine is that, I mean, we're we're talking about habits a lot and how habits change our lives. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I would argue that if you practice a lot of gratitude intentionally, if you sort of make it a habit to, to practice gratitude, it will sort of become your your character in the long run. So there might be people that have this disposition anyway, but I think this is something that's sort of malleable. And if you if you make a habit out of being grateful, one day or one year, it starts it starts becoming part of your your character. So there's definitely an overlap between the two. I totally agree. Yeah, I see that too. Well, yeah. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, on your, um, your we mentioned your Mapalicious blog, you, you listed, yeah. you know, we probably don't have time to go through the 10 specific behaviors that you mentioned could strengthen this, your psychological constitution and help people just kind of get your act together, which I know is easier s- said than done. But you, you, you mentioned that you don't have to do all of them. Well, I, right now, I would say, what would you say are that your top recommendations for specific behaviors? we might be able to uh, just adopt into our lives and routines right now. Right. So I'll, I'll pick three that are probably suitable for, for different temperaments and different interests. Um, the first one is basically a no-brainer, but it's, it's increasingly hard these days. So whatever happens to you, wh- whatever the situation is, please do go outside, grab yourself some sunshine if it's there. Mm-hmm. Please do go out into green environments, go for walks, go jogging or whatever. So really getting getting your body moving is very, very crucial. And you know, sometimes we are asked to, to stay at home. I'm, I'm not sure about the situation in the US. In, in Germany, we were still allowed to go outside. We were going outside uh, in, in, in parks and recreational areas. And just, you know, getting your, your booty off of the couch and getting some movement, especially get, get sunshine. Sunshine is really important. We're now entering the fall season. All the more important to, to go outside when the sun is there, go out to green environments. It's really been proven that, that it's crucial for our health. So that's for the people who like to move. Mm-hmm. Um, for the more uh, cognitively inclined people, I would suggest you create what uh, we call a positive portfolio. This is actually an idea that I've learned from uh, James Pawelski, who's the academic director of uh, the MAP program at Penn. So uh, cheers to James. Uh, the positive <laughs> portfolio really is, is um, you can do it. 
in, in, in a physical way, but you can also do it in, in a virtual way using your smartphone. And since we're uh, using these things all the time anyway, I encourage people to use their smartphones. This is really about creating a folder, an album or whatever, where you put in photos or videos, or it might even be um, music. And, and typically, we create these these photo albums based on a specific time in our lives. So here, here's me in uh, in Ibiza, or here's me hiking in in Colorado, or something. Uh, the positive portfolio is a folder where you intentionally gather only sort of um, well photos and, and anything that is tied to very positive emotions. So these might be photos from your wedding or photos from your from your pets or from your kids. I, I sometimes joke that if you are already divorced and the divorce was better than the wedding, then take photos from your divorce. So. <laughs> What, what, whatever cheers you up, whatever kind of uh, cheers you up in the moment, uh, put that into one folder that is easily accessible. It could also be music that is tied to, you know, memories from a great holiday. But uh, gather all these things in one folder that is directly accessible from the start screen of your smartphone. And whenever you have two or three minutes to spare, don't go for the cigarette, don't go for the chocolate but just uh, pay a little visit to your own uh, positive portfolio. And if these are very, very strong um, emotions, part of that is actually sort of uploaded while looking at these photos. Our, our brain doesn't really distinguish between what is real right now and, and what is only remembered. So if we manage to gather uh pieces of, of our life that, that kind of are tied to these very strong emotions, they will partly be re-uploaded in that moment. And that can really help you to, to distress uh, in a very short amount of time. And you don't actually have to do anything. You know, people go uh, for yoga classes, they go jogging, and this is all very well, but sometimes we don't have the time or the energy to do that. But we have definitely time and energy to, to look at our smartphones for two or three minutes, and we just have to do that in a very intelligent way. And I think the positive portfolio can really be helpful here. So can I say something before you get to your third one? I, I love this. Yeah. So much. I don't, I've never heard this like that. I'm sitting here thinking like so many benefits from that one leading to gratitude, which we just talked about. But here's the thing I love about this most is that we don't have to manufacture our negative emotions, right? We don't have to like, I, I don't have to do a practice to feel anxious or stressed or down about something or upset about something like that is hardwired into um, so much of how our brain operates for survival and it's scanning. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm you know, I'm, if you look at a continuum of positive to negative, I kind of hang out in negative land as a worrier. And so I love this practice because it is for those of us that have to like really be intentional about pulling ourselves into like manufacturing, engineering, some of our positive, like we really have to be focused on that sometimes. So I think this practice can really help people that, that need to be, you know, a little bit more intentional about that. Definitely. Yeah. And so the, the, the third one that I would pick is just try to, to help other people. And there's, Lots of ways to do that. Typically, we might be engaged in some charitable project. 
Um, the thing is that sometimes Corona even prevents us from, you know, engaging in, in those things that we used to do. But there's also a lot of things that you can just do online. Um, I'm, I'm a big music fan. Actually, I, I love heavy metal for whatever reason, but it's, it's yeah. been there for 24 years now. And even the biggest one, maybe except for Metallica and Iron Maiden or something, they are struggling right now because they are very much dependent on earning money through touring. They're, the CD sales are not what they used to be 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And even the fairly big bands are, are struggling right now. And this is why I started, you know, buying their T-shirts again. I, I maybe I, I won't even wear them because I'm I'm a decent man right now. I, I don't wear these uh, these T-shirts. I, I just buy them to support my favorite artists because they really need the money. There's so many artists and other people that are struggling, and and these days you can just support them by by going on platforms like Patreon. So really become a a micro donor or something and support people who who need the money even a little bit more than you right now. And this will actually do something good in the world and will make sure that we still have a cultural scene in one or two or three years from now. But obviously also there's something that we call helpless high. So whenever we help people, um, our brain typically is really happy about that. And we're sort of basking in, in, in that glory of being a good person and it really gives our own mood a, a good boost when we're helpful to other people. So you do something good for others, but through this help us high, you might even cheer yourself up. And that's really a win-win situation. Wow, those are fantastic. Yeah, I'm I'm a heavy metal fan too. That's you know, that's pretty you Yeah, know, now I'm you're in, really speaking his I'm, language. Well, I actually numbers two and three, I've found myself listening to a lot of 80s music. And just like re just putting my arms around that time and it makes me feel better. And I'm just, you know, right. rocking out to, yeah. Like, I mean, Eddie Van Halen died. We're listening to a lot yeah. of Van Halen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm oh, there was this, I, I, I'm not sure if this came over, but there was this beautiful uh, comic strip over here where uh, it was a very simple drawing. It was Eddie Van Halen climbing up a huge uh, guitar. And so he was then climbing up all the way. And there was just this this little um, this little gap. And on the other side, there was God uh, reaching out for him and saying, jump. That was very, very beautiful. <laughs> That's pretty good. I love it. Yeah, we need a we need our drums for that. So I want to switch for the rest of our time for our conversation and talk a little bit about your work in organizational development. Um, so we know that a lot of work practices and habits have changed over the last few months, but leadership it it's a constant, right? It doesn't change. And so I really am curious about your karma method that you have come up with and would love for you to talk a little bit about that and how it um, assesses people's overall meaning and, and purpose at work. Right. So uh, first of all, I have to give credit to um, Michael Steger from uh, Colorado State University who, who came up with this karma acronym. Uh, Michael is one of the world's foremost researchers on everything meaning in life, but also meaning in work. And actually, I I stumbled upon a piece of writing uh, of him a couple of years ago where he tried to uh, succinctly summarize 
all those factors that provide people with meaning in work can be influenced by their direct supervisor. So there's lots of aspects that, that convey meaning, but there's only some of them that can be influenced through the direct supervisor of, of a worker. And uh, he summarized that by, by the acronym KARMA. So uh, the first one C is clarity. is really about providing, well, clarity to the people that you lead in terms of what are the goals of our team, what are the goals of our uh, department, how do those goals tie in with the overall goals of the organization, of the strategy, and so on. Then that's the C. And then the first A is about authenticity. So um, it provides meaning to people in their work when they perceive their leader to be authentic. And mind you, that doesn't really mean we're all going to work in our underwear. It, it really is about being authentic and true to your role. This is also about being a, a developed leader in, in, in a way. Uh, the second A is actualization, which is really about... Of the leader recognizing people's motives, recognizing people's strengths, and then sort of um, changing people's area of responsibility over time. So it better reflects people's strengths and motives and, and so on. Uh, the R is for respect, which is sort of self-explanatory. The M is for mattering. This is really about helping people to understand what their contribution to, to the overall goals of the organizations are. So a clarity is more about what, what are those goals, what are our goals, what are the goals of the organization in, in general. Mattering is more about showing people that they are not only a small cog in this you know, big block work, but at least telling them how their own cog really moves the, the, the big clock work, right? And then um, the last one is autonomy, which is really about being sort of the opposite of a micromanager and giving people leeway and decision-making power. And, and that's karma. And I, I, back then when I discovered that, I was still a, a practitioner. I worked for a very large German media company in HR. And I was just fascinated with this framework and uh, came up with a small a questionnaire to assess the presence of karma in a leader as, as seen from the vantage point of, of the person who's being led. And I, mm -hmm. I, again, I put that on the internet. I reached out to roughly 600 people and I asked them for, for the perception of their uh, leader as regards to karma. But I also asked them, you know, what about your uh, work satisfaction? What about your work engagement? What about your feeling of pride in what you do? What about the presence of meaning? And also, what about your uh, turnover intentions? So how long are you planning to stay with your current employee? Are you, are you happy? Are you willing to stay? Or are you already on LinkedIn trying to find your next gig? Um, and there were some very, very uh, high correlations between the presence of karma in, in the leader and then the presence you know, of pride and work satisfaction and work engagement and so on. And uh, very recently, uh, because that's all correlational and we know that's not the gold standard in research, um, very recently I reached out to that sample again after roughly three years. So uh, the first data um, gathering was about three years ago and then I reached out again a couple of months ago 
to see what were the long-term implications. And I could obviously see uh, how many people had left their current employers since 2016 and 17 and how many people still stayed with their current employer. And then I could link that to the perception of, of leadership three years ago. And the numbers are very, very, very meaningful and very, very, very strong. So if people felt that they were being led by a very, very strong leader, according to Karma, they were still working with their current company um, to uh, roughly 75%. Uh, if they were led by a leader that they, they didn't like, according to Karma, three years ago, most of them had quit their employer in the meantime. And, and for anyone who works in HR, you know, when, when good people leave, it's really expensive. You have to pay severance, you have to do HR marketing, employer branding, you have to train the new people. It takes a lot of time until the replacement is up to speed. So when you drive people away, by tolerating bad leadership. It, it costs big companies millions and millions and millions. And a lot of that starts with a bad leadership. And this is kind of what I what I found out through the Karma research. And the numbers are really strong. They are uh, the best numbers to, to quote uh, Mr. Trump. <laughs> <laughs> the, best, the best, perfect numbers. And what a great um, leader <laughs> as an example he is, yes. Uh, anyway, right. we won't go there. I am curious. Do what? I'm sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. No, no, no. You're, it's a, this is a safe place. That's right. We can talk. Um, I am curious because this comes up so much in this in the organizational work that I do, which is actually quite rare now. But people really want to put an ROI to what you're calling karma. You know, these kind of uh, these leadership skills that we know do all of those good things that you're talking about. So, do you have you looked at uh, these organizations of the 600 folks and kind of looked at what is, what are, what are the metrics around that? Do they have, are they able to share some of their ROI from some of these, if they're even doing leadership development um, or their turnover metrics, anything like that, that you're able to really dig into to, in order to take to a CFO and say, Hey, here's why you invest in leadership development. Have you seen anything about that? So I, I've looked at that, but from uh, around several corners, I would say. So back then, the research was across 600 people from, from different organizations. So I haven't really done a deep dive into one specific organization. Mm -hmm. um, again, if you sort of calculate all the direct and all the hidden costs and all those sort of downturns in productivity – yeah. that come with losing uh, a, a good person due to bad leadership or any other reason, we know that depending on the nature of the role, so is it somebody very high up or is it somebody that's really hard to get, let's say data scientists, any company is looking for data scientists right now, um, the true cost of replacing a person and, and, and making sure that person is up to speed is up to 400% of that person's yearly salary. It's not true for all types of work, but if it's somebody that it's really hard to get in the market and, you know, think about the cost for headhunting and then training and onboarding, uh, this can make up to 400% of the yearly salary of that person. 
And then it's rather easy uh, to calculate how many people you are losing through bad leadership and then multiply that by, you know, whatever the size of your, your company is. And uh, any CFO should be shocked once they've done that calculation. I don't know if, if a lot of them are doing it, but it's really millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. And anyway, I always say, you know, investing in leadership coaching a couple of years earlier is just a tiny fraction of that. That, yeah. that can be sure. That, that, that's for sure. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that, you know, when I think about culture work, um, which is kind of what we're talking about a little bit, you know, they, a lot of the CEOs, the C-level, the C-suite, they're, they're like, yeah, we, we, let's work on our culture, but they don't really know what they're asking for. And they certainly, I, I, what I've seen, they're not really understanding the metrics around that in these very direct and indirect ways. They're kind of like intuiting, yeah, come train our people or we need, you know, we need to do some type of perks or, you know, whatever we think culture is. But there are very few of them are doing this kind of this deep dive into what does it mean for our organization. So, right, and it's it's only one one side of the equation actually, because typically it takes a long time until people mm-hmm. you know finally finally go away. They are typically frustrated for a couple of months or maybe even years before they really make up their minds. So this is uh, a huge hidden loss in productivity that happens well before people go away. This is really hard to quantify, but yeah. I'm positively sure that it's there. And that, that's a couple of uh, another millions and millions and millions of dollars that you probably lose in productivity before people go away. And then the real money starts to show up in the balance sheets. Mm-hmm. So in all, this is my final question, because I'm just, I'm super interested in what you're going to say. All the years that you've been studying positive psychology, what is one scientific finding that has intrigued you the most? Well, there's, there's so many. I came upon a study that wasn't really, you know, carried out in in positive psychology. It was from a team of uh, German economists. And they, they looked at very large data sets from uh, socioeconomic panels that are run over here. And what they found is sort of counterintuitive because if you, you know, if you go on LinkedIn, you see all these posts, thank God it's Friday and Friday, whatever, now the weekend comes up. Um, what they found is that there's a, a pretty big fraction over here that are markedly more happy on Mondays than on Sundays or on Saturdays. So they, they just looked at, at how happy people are over, uh, over many weeks and, and, and months, and they found out that a lot of people are really, really happier on, on Mondays and Tuesdays uh, compared to their, to their weekends. What do you mean by uh, that? Well, I, I think the, uh, the rationale behind it was – it mostly is true for very well-educated people, and it's mostly true for people w- with you know kind of higher-ranking jobs, because uh, those jobs give you a lot of intellectual stimulation. Those jobs give you goals. Uh, those jobs give you a lot of you know leeway and decision-making power, but they also structure your day. And a, a lot of that is actually a prerequisite for experiencing flow. And a lot of what people do on the weekends, if, if they do it, 
you know, like, like we spend our weekends, like go go on Netflix and, and don't go out and don't pursue any any worthwhile goals, it might really be that people experience a sort of, I, I would call it a sort of micro depression on the weekend. And then when they go back to work, at least when it's good work, when they have a good supervisor and, and a good working culture, uh, they, they have this, this experience. Uh, they have worthwhile goals. They have clear structures over the day. They find meaningful what, what they do. And that is actually helping them to experience flow. And, and they don't get that as much on, on the weekend. And that was the rationale of those researchers. That yeah. is surprising. Dr. Nico Rose bringing us all kinds of surprises with positive psychology. You know, another surprise is that you're studying uh, all this optimism and and you're German. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's First of all, really I, German I, I just realized German. I haven't really talked English in a while, so I, uh, I was struggling for words here and there, but I hope I could make myself understand. Oh, please, you nailed it. Oh, yeah, yeah. it's been great. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it, this- it's really... It's, it's really going against the grain. I mean, if you look at what there, – there's lots of English words coming over to the German language and there's lots of French words. If you look at what German words besides kindergarten uh, kind of migrated to English, you know, like Weltschmerz and, and German Angst and, and whatever you have over there. So um, we're, we're better being melancholic so uh, <laughs> and, and being pessimistic. So in a way – being a positive psychologist in Germany sometimes feels a little bit like going against the grain. Right. But, you know, somebody's got to do it, right? That's right. It helps you stand out too, right? Differentiates. Definitely, definitely. Well, well this it's is, been fantastic. Yeah. How can uh, people find you? Where would you like to direct them? Well, if you are from the English-speaking world, uh, you can always get me on on LinkedIn and on Twitter. I'm pretty active there. I I do have my own website, which is just uh, nicorose.de, but the content on on that website is in German only. I'm I'm trying to change that. Otherwise, if you are interested in in positive psychology and uh, also in the experience of learning positive psychology – I, I highly encourage you to, to visit Mapalicious because this was really me learning positive psychology through our one year with the top-notch researchers. So if you start on day one and and go all the first year, 2013, 2014, it's almost like looking over my shoulder while I was learning that at, at Penn. And then I just kept on I'm gathering um, my, my thoughts, but also gathering variable uh, resources in positive psychology. So, and, and that is uh, exclusively English, which is probably a little easier for your audiences, right? Yeah, yeah we'll link to rich, that for sure. rich resource. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff there. So thank you. Thank you for being here and for, gosh, all of these insights that you have and all the experiences you've had that you've now kind of integrated into this life philosophy, really, and for sharing that with us. Thanks for tuning in to the Big Self Podcast. At the Big Self School, we want you to connect with the world in a way that's meaningful. And to do that, you need a community that supports you as you rediscover your purpose and resources to help you along the way. So we're here to help with that. We offer books, workshops, and group coaching to help you rediscover your big self. We hope you'll check out our gratitude challenge this month, the month of November, at bigselfschool.com slash gratitude. We will see you in our next episode.